Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Uh, happy Monday uh, to you and yours. Uh, fantastic, awesome show uh, planned for you today. We got some heavy issues to deal with, obviously, uh, the shooting in Buffalo. We got some light issues to deal with, uh, the collapse of the Phoenix Suns and Chris Paul. We'll do that with uh, Steve Kim. We'll talk Buffalo with uh, Delano Squires, a Monday edition of uh, Professor D. Looking forward to it. And we had a very special uh, interview. Dinesh D'Souza uh, will be our, our final segment of the day. You don't want to miss my interview with Dinesh. His documentary, 2000 Mules, is making news everywhere and having an impact on how people perceive the 2020 election. Uh, I'm going to ask Dinesh, though, about why he beefing with Tucker Carlson. We're beefing over, and Justin Wells, Tucker Carlson's top uh, executive at Fox News. I'll ask uh, Dinesh D'Souza about all of that, uh, but I'm going to start where we love to start. Uh, is with a fire, and I know you guys missed this all last week because I kept you. You got, you guys got to tell us y'all was taking off last week. A man's got to rest occasionally. A man needs some time uh, to rest, and so we took last week off. So I'm, I'm, I'm refreshed. We're all energized. Uh, we're ready to go, uh, and so uh, let's get this fire. Let's get this party started right now. Uh, we can stop calling. Chris Paul a leader. He's not. We can quit comparing the Phoenix point guard to Isaiah Thomas. It's an insult to the Pistons all-time great. We can move on from feeling sorry for Paul because David Stern blocked his trade uh, to the Kobe Bryant-led Lakers in 2011. Kobe couldn't fix what's wrong with the perennial locker room cancer. Chris Paul is a problem disguised as a solution. We know that now after his latest postseason collapse. His NBA-leading 64-win Phoenix Suns exited the playoffs Sunday night in the most embarrassing fashion possible. The Dallas Mavericks routed Phoenix 123-90 in Game 7 of the Western Conference Semifinals. Phoenix trailed by 30 at halftime by 46 in the third quarter. Paul didn't make a bucket until the third quarter of an elimination game. I can't remember an alleged all-time great coming up much smaller in an elimination game, especially on a team that was favored to win the title. Phoenix led the series 2-0 before losing four of the last five games marking the fifth time a Chris Paul-led team blew a 2-0 playoff advantage. It's a record-setting standard. Paul is the first NBA player to blow five different playoff series after leading 2-0. He broke his own record. He was the first to blow four. I was once one of the people arguing that Paul is the modern-day Isaiah Thomas. I fell for his polished image and regular season act. I ignored Paul's numerous critics inside the NBA who swore that Paul's state farm crafted good guy image was fraudulent. CP2 blow is not Isaiah Thomas. 
Paul is Charlie Brown, the cartoon character who can't kick a football. The playoffs are Lucy, the girl who repeatedly clowns Charlie Brown by pulling the football at the last second. This Dallas series snapped me out of my Chris Paul fantasy. He's no leader. At age 37, in his 17th NBA season, he's one of the most immature players in the league. He symbolizes my discomfort with modern NBA players and culture. Both are filled with feminine energy and emotion. The NBA perfectly reflects the emasculation of black men and our cultural embrace of matriarchal leadership. As bad as Sunday's Game 7 was for Paul, he really exposed himself in Game 4. With his mother and wife seated directly behind the Suns bench, Paul fouled out in just 23 minutes of action. He scored just five points in a 10-point loss. Shortly after departing the game with his sixth foul, Paul erupted on a young Mavericks fan who tapped Paul's mother's back to get her attention. Paul's overreaction caused security to remove the fan from the arena. The Mavericks subsequently banned the fan from attending any more Dallas games this season. After the game, Chris Paul profanely complained that the fan laid hands on my mama. Video showed the young boy lightly tapping her shoulder. Paul said his mother and wife felt unsafe in the arena. It was later revealed the young fan jokingly offered Paul's mother a hug. Of course, corporate media and blue check Twitter defended Paul's irrational and emotional response. He's doing what black men are supposed to do, be irrational and emotional. He was defending and protecting his wife and mother. No, he wasn't. He was deflecting from his embarrassing performance. He was smearing a young white fan. He was summoning a social media lynch mob to punish a child for allegedly acting inappropriately toward his mother and wife. Chris Paul exhibited the kind of racist behavior and mindset that led to Emmett Till's death in 1955. Yes, I said it. Yes, I said it, and I don't care if it bothers you. A white man and white women completely exaggerated the behavior of Till and summoned a lynch mob and punished Till. That's what Chris Paul was doing. Again, did he want what happened uh, to, to Emmett Till to happen to this young fan? No. But it's that mindset. It's the exact same racist mindset. I'm some protected person. I'm some elite. How dare someone treat my mother this way? I'm going to exaggerate their behavior and let loose on them the anger and animosity of my followers. The NBA and its players do not want to combat racism. The black players, from Chris Paul to Russell Westbrook to LeBron James, want to benefit from racism. They want to establish themselves as a protected class of people above others who do not look like them. Why would Chris Paul seat his mother and wife directly behind the Suns bench during a road playoff game? It's arguably the most hostile environment in professional sports. 
opposing fans can directly communicate with the visiting team. Chris Paul knows this. But again, Paul isn't a leader. He's a spoiled, entitled jock. He's a beta male afraid to tell his wife and mother no. He's a believer in the matriarchy. Let me make another provocative analogy. Paul's thinking mirrors the mindset of Kenneth Walker, Breonna Taylor's boyfriend. Taylor was the young woman killed when police tried to serve a drug warrant at her apartment in Louisville. Claiming the police never identified themselves, Kenneth Walker fired his gun and shot a police officer. The police returned fire, killing Taylor. So let's take a beat here. Let's think this through. Walker claimed he believed intruders were trying to break into the apartment. He and Taylor arose from bed. He grabbed his gun. He and Taylor walked into the living room of the apartment to see who was at the door. Think this through. What, what man doesn't tell his woman, hey baby, fall back. Let me see what's happening here. Let, let me check this out. You fall back, you stay here in safety. I think there's trouble at the door. I got this, I'll let you know when it's good to come out. You know what kind of a man doesn't do that? A beta male, a believer in the matriarchy, someone devoid of masculine leadership qualities. What man places his woman in harm's way? Chris Paul is Kenneth Walker. Paul dropped his mother and wife into a fire. And when things got hot, Chris Paul melted down. We shouldn't be surprised. The NBA is filled with beta black males who are led by their emotions. They spend their free time getting their hair braided, placed in buns, and color coded. When they're not at the beauty shop, they're walking down arena runways in whatever outfit their LGBTQ plus stylist instructed them to wear. The matriarchy rules black culture. You can see it in the NBA. You can see it in Chris Paul. Our leadership model is completely broken. Our highest level of accomplishment is victimhood. Paul achieved his goal in game four when a little white kid tapped his mama's shoulder. Paul cast himself as a victim. The sons followed his leadership. Mm. That's my fire. Uh, and I meant every word of it, obviously. I know there will be some people, oh, how, 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 how dare you make an Emmett Till analogy? Oh my God, and you, you brought Brianna Taylor into it, and, and Kenneth Walker, they're victims. How could you make those analogies? I did it because it's true. People want to run around and make these exaggerated allegations about little kids and get them in trouble, get them kicked out of arenas because you played a piss poor game with your mama sitting right behind you courtside. What's your mama doing sitting right beside you in the huddle? What kind of a leader invites his mama to game four of an NBA playoffs game and sits her in the middle of a fire? where you and her have to listen to people shout at you on the bench when you're playing your worst game.
There's no thought. There's no forethought. There's no leadership there. There's just someone running around. Oh, my mom and, 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 and wife, they sitting right behind me on the court. That's a beta male. Tell mama and your wife, there's a suite that I got for you, or there's some seats I got for, for you away from the fire. Or tell them to stay their ass at home. And I know it was Mother's Day last Sunday. But we don't believe in that kind of leadership anymore. Whatever mama wants, just give it to her. Hey, I've made this point many times, but the television show Roots, and this put me at odds with many members of my family throughout my life. But the television show Roots, when it came out in the 70s, and I was just a little kid, and I can remember when Kunta Kinte went off to manhood training at age 16, I believe. And when he came back home, every woman in his family, including his mama, had to treat him like a grown man and bow to his wisdom and leadership. He became, once he went off to manhood training, he came back home and he and his father were treated differently than everybody else. That's, again, everybody want to talk about, oh, uh, the white man, they done stripped us of this, they done stripped us of that, they stripped us of our culture. Every natural born, unbrainwashed man, generally speaking, has some leadership qualities about him and some masculine energy about him and takes on the responsibility of leadership We've abandoned it all in, in, in pursuit and in deference to the matriarchy. That's why someone thinks it's a good idea to sit mama on the road behind the Phoenix Suns bench. Because there's no manly masculine thinking. There's no lines being drawn. There's no boundaries being placed. I'm at work. Mama, I don't need you sitting right behind me on the bench when I'm at work. Our whole culture is in tatters. No one wants to talk about it. Everyone, oh, it's all normal. 75% of our kids are growing up with no daddy in the home. No marriage uh, being put together to support these two kids. It's all normal. We're disrupting the nuclear family. White supremacy is two parents in the home. We're going to do it with one parent or with a grandmama or an auntie or a cousin. That's all just as good as mom and daddy married in a family. We're going to ignore all the evidence, all the data, everything. And we're going to create a new culture. And you know what this new culture produces? Beta males. Men who fold under pressure. Men who aren't leaders. Men who spend all their time worried about what color their hair is going to be for game seven. 
Men who sit around before game four, figuring out where, where, where's mama gonna sit at? Where's my wife gonna sit at? Instead of worrying about Luka Doncic and the Dallas Mavericks. Beta males. And we need to deal with it. And all with like, you just don't like black people. The hell I don't, I'm black. That's why I'm offended by this culture that we have adopted of simping. It's embarrassing. This man went in game seven, he, he laid down in game four, and then they just continued to lay down throughout the rest of the series. Not a leader. Uh, Steve Kim, I'm walking you into quite a fire, <clears throat> but I know you can handle it. Uh, I'm gonna start you out with an easy one before I get into any of the matriarchal races. I'm gonna start you out easy. Did Chris Paul damage his legacy uh, last night? Yeah. Yes. And, and the way he's being smeared, I hope he has insurance through State Farm. There's no coming back from this. I really had no idea he had blown so many 2 nothing leads. I still remember uh, the Clippers during the early part of the Chris Paul run having a closeout game against the Houston Rockets. This is about six, seven years ago. I referenced it a few weeks ago. They had like an 18-point lead in the third quarter. I believe it was in game six, and they ended up losing the game and the series. And you're right. Whoever called them a point god, uh, they should be charged with criminal blasphemy. Because forget Magic Johnson. Magic is the unicorn. There's not a lot of guys 6'9 that could ever play that position the way he did. But any references or comparisons to Zeke, Isaiah Thomas, should never have been made to begin with. Now, let's give Chris Paul some credit. He's made 12 All-Star games. He's made 10 all, all NBA teams of some fashion, nine-time defensive, all defensive teams. He's a top 75 player. But if Reggie Jackson in October, Chris Paul is Mr. November through April because when it comes down to the money time in the NBA, he has been an absolute failure. And, you know, what you said and what I kind of digested yesterday in terms of Isaiah Thomas against Chris Paul I still remember Isaiah Thomas one time scoring like 16 points in like 70 seconds in an elimination game against the New York Knicks. I believe it was actually at like the Joe Lewis Arena because the other arena was closed. Bernard King put on this incredible duel. They ended up losing, but it's some of the greatest basketball I ever saw. Isaiah Thomas on one ankle against the L.A. Lakers, Game 6, 1988. In one quarter, one ankle, maybe the greatest thing I've ever seen in basketball. Fortunately, the Lakers got bailed out at the end with the phantom call on Bill Lane Beer. And just the overall leadership of Isaiah Thomas and how tough he was and how clutch he was. Again, if there's a point God whose name is not Magic Johnson, as you've stated, and I think me and you are in accordance with this, it is Isaiah Thomas, nobody else. Well, and and – Let's remove Isaiah and, and Maddie. They're, they're in clearly different lanes. I don't put him on the same level as Steve Nash, two-time mm. MVP. Yeah. I don't put him on the same level as John Stockton, uh, you know, the career assist leader in the NBA. This Chris Paul, again, is no – his legacy now is like, oh, that's the guy that folds in the playoffs.
And so people are running, oh, he's 37. Well, what about all the previous other times teams he's led have folded after being up 2-0? I don't put him in the stands. Bob Cousy, you know, I'm trying to think of who, 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 what level I would put him on or, or who would I compare him to as, as a point guard. But he, John Stockton, Steve Nash, no dice. Well, uh, a couple, you know, couple other names. Tiny Archibald. Gary Payton was a great leader in, in his prime. Yeah, absolutely. Look, Mark Price was a very underrated player. For about seven years, he was excellent. But all those guys, a lot of those guys got lost in the Jordan era. And the one thing about Chris Paul that I'm finding out as I do a deeper dive into this, and Pat Beverly, who just absolutely eviscerated him today, it's clear that he speaks for a lot of NBA players, teammates, and just colleagues that have always thought Chris Paul, for as good as he was, was a bit of a phony. It turns out, CP3, he is that class president that it turns out most of the student body actually hates. And I, I don't, I'm trying, trying to figure out, well, how did he get elected <laughs> as the leader of the school? And Chris Paul has piggybacked a lot. Look, he's done some winning with the U.S. Olympic team. He's won two gold medals. He's had a great association with some of the more popular players in the NBA that have actually really won things. But if you let me tell you who he is, let me tell you who he is. He's short Carmelo Anthony. He's he's six foot two Carmelo Anthony. That's that's who you just described. Stole some gold medals and his friends with LeBron and Dwayne Wade. Yeah. Yeah. And, And by the way, as a Laker fan, I'll be honest about this. Let's say David Stern never interferes with that trade and it's Kobe and Paul in the backcourt. I, I don't know if that really guaranteed another NBA Finals championship for that franchise. I think what it would have done, it would have been a more graceful exit to the last chapters of Kobe's career. And it, instead of being like the 10th or 11th best team, while Kobe shot a good batting average at about 33%, probably would have made them about the third or fourth best team, maybe make a run in the playoffs to the second round, but I just didn't see that team, even with Chris Paul, really making a run for the O'Brien Trophy. Chris Paul has a real interesting situation with Phoenix. I didn't know they had a four-year, $120 million deal. He is a real eater on that salary cap now. And I'm watching this game early on yesterday, and I'm thinking, okay, it's a slow start. It's a slow start. And, and, and I'll watch both games seven. By the way, Jason, this is a team player that I am. When you ordered me via text – Watch both game sevens. I felt like that kid who had great plans over Christmas vacation to do nothing. And you said, you're reading War and Peace, and I'm going to turn in a book report, start of the new year. So I said, okay, I'm going to watch both games. It's very evident that Chris Paul is what he is. But early on, first half, Luka Doncic dominated the game. That That's the feeling that I got over yesterday is that even more than Giannis, whose offensive game has improved, but it's still very, very raw. Luka Doncic, to me, just stood out as right now, if I had to start a franchise, it'd be that big fella who'd be my number one pick. Uh, yeah, that's probably true. I take the other guy that, you know, came off the bench last night, Spencer Dinwiddie, you know, they, they couldn't, they had no answers for him. But, and look, I thought Dallas was impressive. Hats off to Luka, hats off to Jason Kidd, Spencer Dinwiddie. But, but to me, the story is, this was a 64-win team yes. that was in the NBA Finals last year, got up 2-0 in the NBA Finals last year, blew that, 
now comes back and does it again. Their window's closed. Everybody gets exposed here. I got questions about Devin Booker. I got questions about DeAndre Ayton. And I I don't have any questions now about Chris Paul. He's overrated, overhyped. Steve, let me ask you this. My criticism and critique of how Chris Paul handled the situation in game four with his mother and his wife, I feel like he failed to protect them. Uh, Your thoughts, have I overstated uh, his failure there? Can I just say something? When you brought up the comparison to Emmett Till, my eyes turned round. My eyes. I was like, whoa. (laughs) Well-rested Jason Whitlock with the load management went there. And I say, I kind of see where you're going with it. Although I hope that poor young man does not get lynched. Okay, we've had anti-lynching bills. Let's hope that's in place. A couple things. I'm with you in this premise. If you're going to allow your parents or family members to go to a game, what is the point, what is the net positive of having them right behind the bench, especially in a heated situation in a sport where the players and fans actually have the least amount of barrier. Now, I know this. In every other sport, whether it's the National Football League, National Hockey League, Major League Baseball, there's a family section, and they're usually kept away. Or, as you said, sometimes you just buy a luxury box. You keep your friends and loved ones in a cocoon of safety and privacy. Uh, To have them literally right near the team, I don't know what that accomplishes. You know, I've known a lot of boxers. Well, flat out said, because of the nature of our business and the atmosphere in which we perform, they won't let their wives ever go to a fight. Bottom line, and you never see them. In fact, some of them don't even let them go to the fight hotel the week of the fight. They just don't want them there. That this is a man's business. This is a vicious, violent, brutal sport that we're in. I don't want you around it. And for Chris Paul to, to react the way he did and to turn out that all that young man was lightly touch his mother, you're right. It's a complete overreaction. And and now that kid's smeared as the worst thing since who knows. But uh, you're right, Jason. If I'm an athlete, I don't know if I necessarily want all my friends and loved ones at any games because I've seen this in the background where these guys are always messing around with tickets. Do they have the backstage pass? Can they come into the press conference? Look, this is a business. The business that you're in, and this here is the basketball court, is your office. Think about what I said a couple weeks ago. Guys like Magic and Cream, they'd have their parents at the game once or twice a year, but they certainly would never sit right behind the bench. Again, this is a place of business. Yeah, I, 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 the other part that I added onto this is just like, and I didn't call this guy out by name, but it, it, it does some the NBA is such a mama's league. And from Kevin Durant's mother being front and center to, and I'll give LeBron credit. I can remember when his mother got out of line at a game and he told her to sit her rear end down. And it's one of the times where I was like, hats off to LeBron. Uh, it's his ship and he gets to direct it. And, but, but I'm just telling you, we have such a matriarchal culture in the black community that we just don't second guess black mothers at all. We don't put up any boundaries or whatever they, and I get it. Some of these guys 
Chris Paul did know his father. His parents have been married, I think, since 1982. Uh, but, but many of these guys didn't know their f- fathers, and, and they have this allegiance uh, to their mothers. And I get it. I had a great mother. My parents were divorced. Both my parents were involved. I had an awesome mother. But there is a role as an adult that I have to play. And I just, my mother just can't just get to do whatever she wants, gets to dictate to me when I want to show up at your job, I want to do it. No, it it doesn't work that way. And and I just think black culture is so out of whack and so overrun by single motherhood that there are no natural boundaries. There, there is no uh, system or st- customs in place that actually allow men to be men. Jason, you know what really started? The first mother that I really noticed courtside at a lot of games, and she became a personality, and she didn't shy away from it, Allen Iverson's mother. I mean, she used to wear the jersey all the time. You always knew where she was, and she was always on camp. I'll never forget, AI has a domestic issue with his wife. They got into a fight. He locked her out of the house, and she's banging on the doors. The cops were called. And when all of that became this media hailstorm, the mother was out there. There's a famous interview where she's almost arguing with the media about how you were covering this story. And I remember one of her lines is about the wife. Well, did she tell you that? And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is not a good look for AI. Stop it. Just drive off. Be a concerned mother. Try to repair that marriage. The other question I have, and it may be a sensitive issue, but I guess we're all fearless here. Jason, you make a good point, and I was thinking about this. How many white parents do you even know what they look like, any of the white players or any of the European players? I, I can tell you right now, if Luka Doncic's mom or father came up to me and slapped me in the back of my head, I'd have no idea what they look like. In fact, now that I think about it, when you watch the NBA coverage, and if there's a standout white player, for how many there are, do we ever see them in the crowd? I'm sure they the games, but are they ever focused in on at any level? No. And mm-hmm. now many of them... Keep it. Luka Doncic is from another country. Dirk Nowitzki, who was at last night's game, he's from Germany. Uh, you know, Nikolai Jokic, where, where is he from? Ukraine or Russia or I, I'm not sure. Uh, and so who knows where their parents are living. Uh, but, but literally the same thing kind of goes on in the NFL in terms of the mothers of – NFL players, white ones, aren't front and center the way the black mothers are. Yeah. Or, you know, they're even more front and center than, than the fathers. Again, the media enforces the culture of the black matriarchy. These are spaces and outlets to promote single mothers and to celebrate because they're all victims of the irresponsible black man. That's the narrative that's being promoted. Uh, but, but you're right, I think across the NBA, there are a lot of stage parents, and it's no different than in Hollywood, in the movie industry, where there's a lot of stage parents. You got the same thing going on, on now. Uh, Steve, I wanna take a quick break here before we get to an approval segment on Chris Paul. This is not a commercial. This is not another endorsement. This is life or death. 
Here at The Blaze, we're building a village of Blaze babies with a goal of rescuing 50,000 babies from abortion. Let me tell you a little bit about Preborn and how they have rescued over 188,000 babies' lives. When a woman under pressure to abort her baby meets that baby and hears the precious heartbeat, it's a game changer because 80% of the time she will choose life. Preborn clinics are located in the highest abortion areas in the country, standing strong for mothers in crisis and introducing them to the beautiful life growing inside of them. Would you join us in rescuing preborn babies? It's one of the most important things you can do helping to preserve these precious lives. One ultrasound is just $28, or you can sponsor five ultrasounds for $140 and save five babies' lives. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate securely, call pound 250 and say the word baby. That's pound 250, keyword baby, or go to preborn.com slash Jason. That's preborn.com slash Jason. Let's do it. Let's save babies' lives. The fight is not over. Yes, we're expecting the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade, but the fight is not over. You can still help. Be a good, fearless soldier. Do the most fearless act possible. Let's save a young baby's life. All right, welcome back, uh, Steve. I don't think this is your first uh, approval rating, but it's good to have you here in the approval rating segment. Uh, we can get our final thoughts here on Chris Paul. I I'm telling you, I've done a complete 180. This guy was one of my favorite players <laughs> of uh, pl currently playing. I'm a huge Monty Williams fan. Guy wears his faith on his sleeve, and so I was rooting hard for the Phoenix Suns. And then that incident happened last Sunday, not this past Sunday, the Sunday before that on Mother's Day. And I have completely soured on uh, Chris Paul. Uh, so uh, in terms of job performance, uh, the last, I believe, four games, the guy averaged like eight or nine points a game. Uh, last night, he didn't score a bucket until the third quarter. The game was over. Uh, he got he fouled out of game four and then acted a fool. I give him a two in job performance. Mm. Yeah, he didn't have an effective game after game two. And you're right. I believe in the last five games of that series, he did not add double-digit points. Nowadays, as a point guard, you got to score a little bit. Look, I gave him a five, and I thought I was being a little bit generous. Nah, you weren't generous. You, I th well, actually, you were too generous at a five. I take that back. Uh, character, I'm like you and what we talked about earlier. I had ignored a lot of these people that had been hypercritical of Chris Paul behind the scenes. I lived out in L.A. for 10 years. Chris Paul was with the Clippers for many of those years. I heard the stories, and I ignored them. I was like, hey, man, the guy's rough around the edges. Uh, you know, he, he's a bit abrasive, so what? If he, you know, pushes his teammates in a way that makes them uncomfortable, he just wants to win. I thought the guy was Isaiah Thomas. I was dead wrong. Other people that know him better, played in the NBA, worked in the NBA, were telling me this dude's a bad dude. So I, I gave him a 10 in character, 10 out of 25. 
All right, Jason, we're going to have a vehement disagreement. I actually give him credit for the fact he's been a good citizen. There haven't been any off-the-court scandals. I think that matters. I still think he presents himself well. Uh, I gave him a 20. I, I didn't want to hammer him too much. I mean, for the most part, a lot of times we care about the off-the-court behavior and how they present themselves as individuals. I think he's been okay, so I gave him a 20. Mm. Uh, yeah, mm. we definitely disagree there. Authenticity. <laughs> uh, I'm not that down on him in terms of authenticity. Uh, I, I think I was fooled because of the State Farm commercial, but those are commercials. I, I think he's authentic about who he is. He's a bit of a jerk and abrasive on the court, off the court. So I, I find him somewhat authentic. I gave him a 17 in authenticity. Oh, I, I'm surprised you went that high. Okay, I went 15 because, as I said, I'm, another analogy, he's that teacher's pet that all of the other students hate. Yeah, he might get good grades. He seems to be the guy always sitting in class, raising his hand. Meanwhile, every time he speaks, everyone rolls their eyes, and they don't want to eat with him at the lunch table. That's him. So I got to go with the 15. Uh, it factor. Looks like we got some discrepancy here. He's all over these State Farm commercials. The State Farm commercials have been popular. Uh, now, I do think this latest little, now that he's known as CP2 Blow, uh, <laughs> that he's now known as a choke artist. His that it factor goes down, but before that, it was previously high. I got him at a 14 in it. 14? 14? I, I think I gave him a five. Because the bottom line, he ain't got it in the playoffs. Look, legacies are made from late April to early June as a premier player. Now, I'm going to say this again. He's top 75. He will make hundreds of millions of dollars many accolades, but we can't have it both ways. There are certain players that I believe were better than Chris Paul and that people generally really love, like a Charles Barkley. We always hold it against him. He never won a title, even though Charles Barkley took teams on deep playoff runs. At least he did in 1993, lost to an all-time great player, maybe the greatest ever in Michael Jordan in a memorable six-game series. Look, we got to have the same standards for everyone, and that's why – Yes, you're a great regular season player, but you don't get it done when the weather turns warm. That's why I'm going with the nickel. Mm. All right, we both got him at a dumpster oh. fire. Uh, I got him at 43, you got him at 45. I'm thinking about adjusting mm. uh, these ratings and, and make, because I think it's 50 and below as a dumpster fire. I think I may make it 40 and below dumpster fire. Uh, I think we need a little bit more room there. You got to be a little bit worse than, you know, it's not It's not like these are Joe Biden approval rating numbers. That's the real dumpster <laughs> fire. The guy's still hovering above 40. All right, oh. thank you, Steve. Uh, I got to move on. Delano Squires. These words are our religion, our regrets, and our decisions. We don't want to go to heaven with freedom. It's my obligation, no hate, discrimination, raising up your hands for freedom. All right, welcome back. Uh, time to bring in uh, Professor D, Delano Squires. Uh, we're going to talk a bit here about uh, the mass shooting in Buffalo uh, that has rocked this country. Everyone's been talking about it. I believe 10 people are dead, uh, three more, I believe, hospitalized. Uh, the media 
uh, I've just got to speak honestly, loves this story because of the racial implications of it. Uh, there were shootings in Chicago, uh, I believe this past weekend. There were shootings in Milwaukee. Uh, there were shootings, I believe, yesterday in Orange County, California. Uh, this one here in Buffalo, the worst of those, 10 people dead. Uh, the, the alleged shooter or the confirmed shooter, uh, you know, seemingly a white supremacist, that uh, this attack was racially motivated. Having said that, I, I just, I'm uncomfortable right now with how quickly this incident has been politicized and uh, politicized and used as a way to, oh, well, it, it's conservatives' fault, it's Fox News' fault, it's Tucker Carlson's fault, it's, it's, it's the ugly, ugly head of an example of just how racist America is. This is one lunatic, uh, no different than the lunatic that uh, ran over people in Waukesha. Uh, that guy was black, no different than the guy that shot up people in the New York, Brooklyn, New York subway uh, within the past month or six weeks or so. This one here, though, has the attention of the American media. Joe Biden, I think, has said he's going to go to Buffalo and visit the area. I don't think I heard about Joe Biden going to Waukesha. I don't think I heard about Joe Biden going to Brooklyn, New York. Uh, but he's going to Buffalo and, and you know, not that the, I'm just using this clip as an example of how this thing is being politicized and used to make political points. Here is, I believe, Anna Navarro on The View, I believe, today uh, making her political or media point about what happened in Buffalo. And listen, if you are an advertiser, advertising on that station, you are part of the problem. If you sit on the board and are trying to be a civilized person, Paul Ryan, my friend, I'm talking to you, you are part of the problem. Yep. If you're a Republican donor tweeting about how bad you feel about this, but you're donating to people like Elise Stefanik, you are part of the problem. Yeah. If you are a staffer working for them, you are part of the problem. If you are voting for them, you are part of the problem. So I'll tell you what great replacement theory should be. We should replace all these people peddling hate and making financial yeah. and political gain from spreading racism. We should replace them with people who hold up American values. So Anna Navarro was making the argument that Tucker Carlson and conservatives that talk about the replacement theory, the desire to bring in illegal immigrants and replace white voters with illegal immigrants, that these people are responsible because the shooter in his manifesto, I believe, referenced uh, the replacement theory. And Navarro's arguing that, you know, only the right and conservatives are peddling racism. I see it from my vantage point is the media is, pub is uh, promoting racism for clicks, relevancy, ratings, and money. That going on TV every day and, and arguing that America founded in racism 
irredeemably racist, white supremacy, the greatest threat uh, to America. The police are randomly and viciously and strategically uh, going out and killing unarmed black men during routine traffic stops. All of that is a promotion of racism as well. So, it, anyway, Delano, let me start you here. Is it fair, appropriate to blame Tucker Carlson and other people in the media who talk about the great replacement theory? Uh, is it fair to blame them for the Buffalo shooting? Not at all, Jason. I mean, I, I, I would be more likely to listen to um, left-leaning personalities in the media if they showed any ability to take any principle and apply it evenly across the board to friend and foe alike. But that's not what they do. So no amount of anti-police rhetoric um, anti-white rhetoric for, the, for that matter. Even Anna Navarro, I remember after the, the um, Democratic National Convention, when she was back on CNN, she made a remark. Now she said it in jest, but still she said something to the effect of, you know, this is the first time I've been around straight white men in a few days. And um, I, I, you know, I enjoyed not being around them for a while and it did my little brown heart so much good. Now that's the type of thing that you can only say about white people in 2022. So um, when these people engage in that type of rhetoric, again, headlines from CNN that say angry white men are the most dangerous or violent people in America from the Daily Beast that says you, you damn Karens are killing, killing us in America. Um, these people don't have the moral standing to, to talk about, you know, hot rhetoric and, and the degree to which people take that rhetoric and then act on it. Um, now, that being said, I'm all for turn, tone, toning down the rhetoric in general. But again, this has to be a truce on both sides. And that's that's not the case right now. Um, as it relates to the substance. Re replacement theory is not something that should be avoided, partly in, because the Democrats talk about it openly. They, they talk about the browning of America. And when they do so, they don't speak about it from neutral terms. They see it as a good thing that America is going to, to be browner. Now, I don't know if they still believe that after 2020, seeing how well Trump did with Hispanics and sort of moving into 2022. But the notion that, um, that, that you know, a, a decreasing white demographic is, is not part of the you know, Democratic playbook is one that I, I just find strange. They, they talk about it openly all the time, you know? So, I think it's, it should be something that should be discussed because I, I think all every political constituency in this country deserves representation. And when any group feels like they are losing um, status, uh, power, influence, it doesn't matter what the venue is, they, they tend not to react well to that. Uh, I asked people on social media, you know, people I was engaging with, I said, is this any different than how um, you know, people in urban communities talk about gentrification, the notion that someone is intentionally using policy to push out the black residents in a particular neighborhood in favor of largely higher income white residents is something that elicits a lot of uh, pushback. 
And it does cause fear and anxiety in the same way, Jason, if Howard University or Morehouse or Spelman um, became 55 percent non-white in the next 20 years because the presidents of those universities said we're making a push because you black kids don't behave the way that we want. We're making a push to bring in, you know, a new constituency that's more likely to abide by our rules. I'm assuming the alumni will have something to say about it. So on both measures, I, I, I don't subscribe to the notion that uh, political pundits engaged in sort of mainstream rhetoric should be blamed for the acts, the heinous evil acts of, of criminals. Um, but I also don't think that, you know, these types of uh, uh, political issues should be taken off the table. Well, to me, if they want to tone down replacement theory rhetoric, uh, build a wall, protect our borders, uh, establish an immigration policy that makes sense and enforce it, and that rhetoric, rhetoric will go away. And then the other thing, what they do by, by constantly racializing this is they don't, because when I hear people talk about the replacement theory, I don't care what comes out of their mouth. The way that I hear it is like people, the Democrats or the left wants to replace the people with traditional American Christian values. Mm. They want a constituency that has no respect for our founding, the principles we were founded upon, and they want to replace that kind of thinking. They've profiled the type of American they think thinks that way, and they see him, they see that person as a white male, but myself as a Christian black male, I see, no, I like America's traditional values. I, I, I know that our history is littered with sin, but I like the arc and the narrative that our mm. founding documents put us on, so I respect these values, and I don't want them replaced by people that are Marxist and hostile to religion. And so mm. that's the replacement theory that I'm really worried about. And they keep dirtying up the issue because they don't want other black people to recognize, no man, they're talking about replacing Christian values. That's what they're really talking about. It's not about let's replace white men, let's get people in here that think differently than the founding fathers. Yeah, and, and that's the thing with, with, you know, when you, when, when political rhetoric does not go past the stage of, you know, cliche and euphemism, um, it causes a lot of static because no one knows what the other person is talking about. Uh, so, so for me, you know, when I hear replacement theory, I, 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 I do tend to link it to what Democrats say about their desire to see a demographic change in this country um, with the intended purpose of you know, making racism and white supremacy a less potent force in our politics, right? Because their idea is the more brown people, um, and specifically, you know, from, from South and Latin America who come in, the more they'll vote Democrat um, and the better the country will be, right? That's, I think that's their general theory. The funny thing, Jason, is that they don't apply this even as it relates to Hispanic voters. When those voters are coming from Cuba, and, and they're people who the, the left thinks will vote Republican, then the head of, uh, of you know, Department of Homeland Security says, I want to tell the Cuban people to stay where you are. Do not try to come here. But when you're talking about immigration from the southern border, 
then it's a very, a very, very different story. So I, I agree with you. I think the fact that discussing, um, you know, secure borders, a border wall, any of those measures is deemed racist is part of what fuels the fire um, of these types of, of theories. Because again, if you're a country, and you don't have borders, you're not a country, you're a region. People are just passing through. It's the same way you may build a house. The, the structure may look good. The foundation may look good. Right. The, the windows may be stained glass, brand new roof, so on and so forth. But if you have no doors and people can just pass in and out, then you don't really have a house. And the people who live in that house will never completely feel secure. So, so my thing is, I don't really care about the, the, the demographic part of it. Right. Because for me, part of what the government, its first responsibility is to the citizens of this country. Um, if citizenship means nothing, then you'll get people who don't care about it. And I think that's part of what you're seeing right now. Um, and, and, I, and I also don't fault the people who come here because we are the ones who create incentives for them to come here. Um, so it's one of those things where, again, I, I think the, the left completely lacks any sense of self-awareness. The, the people on MSNBC and The View who engage in, you know, racial demagoguery and, and firestar arson on a daily basis have no standing, no moral authority to lecture anybody about how we talk about race um, because they explicitly racialize issues. Um, I remember coming out of when well, we were still in the pandemic and Joy Reese said something to the effect of, you know, um, Texas is opening up because these these white people want to get blacks and Hispanics back to making their stakes. I said, what? What? I, I didn't even understand where that came from. But this is the type of thing that these uh, outlets engage in on a daily basis. So um, I, I reject not just their arguments. I reject the uh, authority that they think they have to even make them. So this seems obvious that there's a double standard here. But when you look at Buffalo and the media's reaction to that, as opposed to Waukesha, where mm -hmm. Daryl Brooks, black man, put a lot of racist stuff on his social media platforms, uh, but the media didn't seem to want to pay much attention to Waukesha, and it's almost like, I, I hate to say it, but it, it seems almost celebratory that they're happy mm -hmm. that this, but look, there's racism, and we get to talk about it, and we're gonna, and, and, and Am I right that there's a clear double standard? We're, we're looking at it in real time. Oh, I, absolutely. I mean, anybody but Stevie Wonder could see that, that there's a double standard here. Um, that, that part is not even uh, in question. Right now, I, I will say this. I think, as I said, I think both sides could tend to turn this down because I'm sure you noticed this, especially over the last couple of years. As soon as we even hear that a mass shooting is taking place. You, you can hear the rumble on social media. Okay, it's gonna be a black guy, it's gonna be a white guy. It's gonna be a black guy, it's gonna be a white guy. Um, and I think that that type of perspective is deeply, deeply unhealthy. Uh, it, it only adds to the, to the dehumanization that we engage in on a daily basis, whether we're talking about abortion, you know, the, the, the stuff around um, transgenderism and, 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 you know, teenage mutilation. Um, the daily gun violence that we see in our largest cities uh, or the, the relatively small 
you know, group of mass shootings of, of this caliber, regardless of who the perpetrator or the victims are, um, our, our tendency to immediately jump to political implications, I think, is a sign of a deeply, deeply unhealthy uh, polity and, and sort of a deeply unhealthy set of social norms. So it would be nice if people could just just let it sit for a while, you know, and we actually pray as a nation. Right. Actually cry out to God for the type of depravity that we see that would make someone um, or inspire someone or lead someone to engage in this type of behavior. Right. And and again, I'm Jason, sometimes it's, it, it feels like, um, you know, I'm, I'm standing at the top of a mountain. I'm just I'm looking for somebody. Can, can somebody take a set of principles and standards that they can just apply consistently for two days? That's all I ask. Just two days. But instead of doing that, we say, OK, if it's this race or that race is good or not, not good. Well, this proves the point we're trying to make. If it's the other way, then we memory hold it or ignore it so that we never have to deal with it. And, and I think as a country, just be good to say, you know what? This is a grave evil. This is a, a, a tragedy of the first order. And, and we really should be praying for these families that God will comfort them and give them some sort of peace as they deal with the grief that they will inevitably be dealing with for the next couple of weeks. And, and then after things settle, maybe we can look at you know, political motivations, which I'm, I'm not against doing. It's just, again, if there was one set of standards that we could apply consistently, then it would be a little bit easier to do that in a public setting. But that's not where we are right now. Do you think Joe Biden visiting Buffalo is going to hurt or help this issue? That's a good question. I mean, I, I hope it helps it net net. I think it could help it if he came together, if, if, if Joe Biden did, does in Buffalo what Barack Obama did um, in, in Charleston, right, after, after the shooting at uh, Mother Emanuel, where, you know, he, he sang Amazing Grace, he was at the funeral, but he didn't, he didn't make the issue about white supremacy. He made the issue about the victims of, of the crime, not the perpetrator. And I think if the current president does that, then I think net net, it'll be good for the country. It, it could become a healing moment. Um, that hasn't been his tendency because even the notion and you've heard him say this on multiple occasions, or the greatest threat in this country is, is, you know, domestic terrorism and political extremism, particularly the type that's rooted in the belief of white superiority. Right. So he's made that argument a couple of times. Um, if, if he presses that button too hard, I, I do think that it, it'll be a net negative for the country. It'll only continue to uh, inflame some of these tensions. And, and, and just to be clear, I, I want to hammer this home. It's not that I believe that anyone on the right excuses the shooter, is making, you know, is trying to run cover for the shooter. I think the frustration on the right is that we all see that these these standards, right, the degree to which political rhetoric can be linked to the actions of an individual are never fairly and consistently applied across the political spectrum. Um, so if, if the pres president can strike a tone where, again, he he actually seeks to heal rather than inflame, then I think it'll be good for the country. But if he goes in the direction that he's used to going, 
at least recently, um, then I think it'll hurt. Delano, we'll end on this note, and I appreciate the time, but I think connecting this to the replacement theory, I'm going to say this. The argument and why I think it's going to inflame things is because Joe Biden going to Buffalo, Barack Obama going to Charleston, it's, it's, none of it ever reinforces all lives matter. If there's a tragedy involving black people, the president's going to show up. If it happens in Waukesha, president's not going to show up. Those lives aren't as valuable as black lives and black victimhood. And, mm. and so, again, this whole replacement thing that's going on is an attack on Christian values, Christ, the gospel, God, also, all lives matter. Yeah. We've now been on a 10 year run of no black lives matter and they that must be affirmed and if you say all lives matter if you do anything that indicates you believe all lives matter you're out of step with the new thinking that again isn't christian based isn't gospel based isn't biblical based it's this new world order that the left wants to establish that there's a racial hierarchy that they're in mm. control of and they get to determine which lives matter the most, depending upon the perpetrator. It's not a biblical standard. It's not a Christian standard. They want the Christian standard replaced. We have to fight against it. A lot I got to go. Thank you so much. Uh, okay. I want to tell you guys about uh, Bank on Yourself. We've been brainwashed into believing the only way to grow our money for retirement is to risk it in the stock market. Not true. You can reach your financial goals and dreams without taking any unnecessary risks. Bank on yourself is a better way to grow and protect your hard-earned money, guaranteed predictable growth and retirement income with no luck, skill, or guesswork required. In fact, Bank on Yourself has a 160-year-plus track record of positive growth. You have control of your money without government penalties or restrictions on how much income you can take or when you can take it. You don't have to beg permission or pledge your firstborn to use your own money. Perhaps the best reason of all, you'll know the minimum guaranteed value of your plan on the day you plan to tap into it and at every point along the way. You can get free a free report with all the details of how adding bank on yourself to your financial plan can help you take back control of your money. Just go to bankonyourself.com slash fearless. That's bankonyourself.com slash fearless. Take control of your finances. There's no better way to be self-sufficient than taking control of your finances. And that's what we are here all about here with the Fearless Army. Being self-sufficient, being responsible for ourselves. Bank on yourself is a great way to do it. All right, don't go anywhere. Dinesh D'Souza, just around the corner. Eric. All right, welcome back. We have a awesome show uh, going today uh, and where it's going to get even better. Dinesh D'Souza, the hottest documentarian going in the country right now. He's got out uh, a documentary on election fraud. 
and what went on with the 2020 election. 2,000 mules, I've watched it myself. It was well worth the $30 investment. I recommend it to, to everyone. Uh, no matter what side of the political aisle you're on, I found it very informative, and I think the word I used was compelling. Uh, Dinesh, uh, welcome to Fearless. You certainly are fearless. This documentary is certainly fearless. Uh, and it seems to be doing quite well. It's crossed 10 million in revenue. It, it, it seems to be tracking uh, towards great success. It's been amazing because um, it's not a documentary I could release the normal way. We didn't have a normal mass theatrical release like my earlier films. I haven't put this documentary on Amazon Prime or Apple iTunes. So I resolved early on, it's not going on any cancelable platform. It's going to go only on places where it cannot be taken down. And so now, interestingly, after we did a very limited theatrical release and it was so successful that theaters have been beating down our doors to bring it back in the theater. So I'm actually happy to say for the first time on your show that this Friday, May 20th, the movie goes back into 400 theaters. And this time it's not like we rent out the theater. It's a normal theatrical release, four shows a day. It's gonna open in 400 theaters around the country this coming weekend. Now you said that you didn't put it on any cancelable platforms. Why is that? You, you said not on Amazon Prime. What's the strategy behind that? Well, we released a film um, in right leading up to the 2020 election called Trump Card. It was really not so much about Trump. It was really more based upon my book, United States of Socialism. And it came out about, the film came out just right before the election, maybe a month before the election. And uh, interestingly, although we had supplied tens of thousands of DVDs to Amazon, on the day of the release of the film, Amazon just put up out of stock. So they didn't, they didn't ban the film, they just refused to ship it. And people were trying to order it, but they couldn't get it. And they obviously wanted it before the election. So I got such a bitter experience from being shafted by a very powerful company at the last minute. Now Amazon claimed, you know, this wasn't ideological, they had a glitch, but I mean, we had a narrow window between October and the election. So I'm like, you know, in the future films, I'm gonna do it in such a way that I, I don't want my trailer pulled down on YouTube. I don't wanna, so if Facebook wants to ban me, go ahead and ban me. Uh, right now, I'm not dependent on Facebook. I'm not dependent on YouTube and I'm not dependent on Fox. That we're gonna to get to that in a second. I wanna start here though with just an honest question I have to ask as an objective journalist. Your relationship with Donald Trump, and he pardoned you, you're close to him. Do, do, do you understand why some people might think that might undermine the credibility of your documentary? Of course I do. Now, let me say a few things about that. Number one, when Trump pardoned me, I didn't know the guy. I'd never met him. Um, I had spoken to him once on the phone on a different matter, and he knew about my case. In fact, it was Ted Cruz, whom I do know. Ted Cruz's father married Debbie and me. He's a pastor. And so Ted Cruz went to, to Trump and said, please pardon Dinesh D'Souza. He was unfairly treated. And Trump was like, he was shafted. Uh, it's done. So Trump did it for me. But it, it wasn't like it was some obligation or I knew the guy, nothing like that. Now, 
if you watch this film and you've seen it, so you can actually testify to it, you'll see that this is not a film about Trump. I mean, Trump appears briefly in the film, but unlike other films about this topic, if you look at Dave Bossie's film Rigged, it has a lengthy interview with Trump. Trump is like a centerpiece of that movie. He's not a centerpiece of this movie. Now, I knew that obviously any movie that makes a finding that, that absent the fraud, Trump would have won, Trump would be excited about a kind of vindication for him. I did go to Mar-a-Lago, I will admit, before the release of the film and show him the film. But I didn't do it with giving him any veto power or anything like that. I showed him the film. This is what we've done. We're going to be releasing this film. And we did our premiere at Mar-a-Lago for the simple reason that it's quite honestly, one of the coolest venues in the world. So it was a very cool place to show the film. Uh, but aside from that, no, this is not a case where this is a film. This is a film about the theft of the votes of the American people. That's the way I see it. They're not stealing from Trump. They're actually stealing from voters who are casting legitimate votes. Well, I, I came away feeling like this is how you water down the voice of the people because it seemed like what you guys were arguing is they just added a bunch of votes to key areas to swing things. And so what that does is diminish the power of the actual voter uh, by adding all the to, you know, in Milwaukee, in Philadelphia, in Atlanta, you add all these extra votes, it actually diminishes the power of the actual voter. Well, I think that's actually an understatement. And the reason is this. Uh, if, if you and I are playing, you know, a game, let's say basketball, and I'm winning, and I'm winning 60 to 40, and somebody adds 10 points to your score, yes, they're, they're devaluing the baskets, right? Because they're adding uh, illegitimate uh, points to your score, but they're not changing the outcome. Uh, on the other hand, if they add enough votes to your score where you now win the game, I mean, you get the prize, you move on to the playoffs, I'm left, you know, that's a whole different matter. It's not just that my vote is diluted. I would have been on the winning side and now I'm on the losing side. So I would argue that the implications, they do involve the dilution of the vote, but they can go even further when there's enough fraud to tip the balance in the election. Dinesh, I don't want to be argumentative with you at all, but I do want to clarify my point just more for the audience, because one thing before watching your documentary, I was someone that was suspicious of the vote and the, of the 2020 election. I was very suspicious, but I didn't know how to argue what my suspicion was. And, and so what I see from the left constantly, corporate media, the Democratic Party, uh, the, their conspirators in the media, is they keep trying to convince uh, Trump supporters and, and p supporters of traditional American values, take Trump out of it. They're trying to argue that we're outside of the mainstream, that the majority of people actually see things the other way. And that's why this whole dilution process bothers me because it, it's, it's trying to convince us that 81 million people voted for Joe Biden and that, that the rest of us are in the minority who were like, hey man, are we really gonna send this guy uh, to the White House? We're really this dissatisfied with Trump? I, I, I think that has been their number one strategy, number, number two strategy, the number one strategy is if you think, if you have traditional American values, if you're patriotic, well, you're just a racist. If you support the founding documents, you're a racist. And then part two of that is, 
If you think this way, you're out of the mainstream. The majority of America thinks this other thing. You know, I have not spoken about election fraud for a long time. And, and it was, to me, conceivable that Trump could have lost the election because I said to myself, when I would hear people saying, oh, I'm sure Trump won, I would say, well, look, lots of people like Trump, but lots of people don't like him. Uh, he might have gotten more votes from working class guys. He might have gotten more votes from minorities, Hispanics and blacks, but he could have lost even more suburban votes. That's a possibility. So as a result, a lot of these so-called anomalies that people point to, I was like, I don't know for sure. The reason I uh, made this movie is I saw coming from True the Vote, this election intelligence group, evidence of a different caliber than I had seen before. This was evidence that I could understand. And I also realized that because there's video evidence as a movie maker, it lent itself to making a movie. Because in a movie, if you're gonna do a whodunit, you're gonna show a crime scene, people need to see the crime being committed. And that's the power of this movie is it has not only electronic evidence, which is the geo-tracking of cell phones, but it has video evidence. And see, no one has disputed the video evidence because this is the video of the states themselves. So as a result, um, the left can't say anymore, this was the most secure election in history. Uh, they just they can't get away with it because people can now see with their own two eyes what really happened. The other thing that you argued well in your documentary is like, hey, there's a high standard we set before we present this to you as compelling evidence of fraud. There had to be multiple examples of them going to the same place and uh, either the drop-in mailbox places or these charities or, or uh, organiz grassroots organizations. There had to be multiple examples of this. That was where what I found really compelling along with when you're showing people on video wearing plastic gloves to put mail-in ballots in a box and then immediately throwing away the plastic gloves. You've caught them with their hands in the cookie jar. If there are no plastic gloves, the plastic gloves can only indicate we're committing a crime and we know we're committing a crime. Exactly. Uh, the, the fact checkers are relying, there's an argument in rhetoric called the argumentum ad ignorantium, which is the argument that relies on the ignorance of the audience. So if you haven't seen the film and you read these fact checkers that say things like, well, you know, people are allowed in Georgia to deposit the votes of their immediate family members. And yeah, that's true. That is actually part of what Georgia allows. But let me ask you this. If you're dropping off family members' votes, number one, why would you go to 10 or more drop boxes? Why wouldn't you go put them all in one box? Number two, why would you go at three in the morning? Number three, why would you wear latex gloves? Not woolen gloves because it's cold, but latex gloves. Number four, why would you take photos of the ballots as you're putting them in? Who does that? This is not a selfie. It's not I voted. Uh, it's like you have to prove to someone that you did a task or delivered a job. And so all of this taken together, it's the level of detail that blows all this stuff out of the water. And as you say, the geo-tracking is accurate and then the video confirms the geo-tracking. So in other words, you can see from the geo-tracking that a mule, a particular guy, let's say me, was at a particular Dropbox at let's say 1.57 a.m. in the morning. Then you go look in the video at 1.57, there he is. So the one confirms the other, and as a result, the combination of the two independent streams of evidence is really convincing.
Dinesh, uh, all controversy a lot of times can be good, uh, particularly if you're selling a film. Uh, I want to reference a couple of tweets you've made to ask, you know, what's going on here with you and Fox News. Uh, the first one is, if Fox is being blocked from mentioning 2,000 mules by its lawyers, it needs to fire its lawyers. They let Fox get into ruinous litigation over what they did what they did allow and now want to cover their butts by shutting down a completely legitimate news story of massive public interest. Uh, Fox hosts and pundits routinely denounce the mainstream media for banning any mention of the Hunter Biden story in the weeks leading up to the election. Fox itself is now banning any mention of 2000 mules. Both are important legitimate stories. So what's the difference? Uh, then finally, I'm sorry to say Tucker Carlson and his team specifically instructed Katherine Engelbrecht of True the Vote not to mention the movie. Uh, and then you copied Justin Wells, uh, Tucker's uh, top uh, producer. You're beefing with Tucker Carlson, who I think most people would consider an ally of Dinesh and probably an ally of 2000 Mules. I, I literally, Dinesh, I got to be honest. I knew about your documentary because I saw Catherine on Tucker Carlson's show and I yeah. made the mental note of like, oh, I'm going to buy uh, this documentary. I found her interesting, compelling. I went and Googled her, knew that she was connected to your documentary. Uh, why are you beefing with Tucker Carlson? Yeah, I don't, you know, I really don't want to fight with Tucker. And to be honest, I got a text minutes before Catherine went on the show from Greg Phillips, uh, her partner, who basically said, you know, Tucker's people have told her, don't say the name of the movie. Now, what's weird is that the movie's out. People are talking about it. They were discussing the themes in the movie. So I thought it was a little odd. And, and a little earlier, I had a rather unpleasant exchange with Justin Wells. He had sent me a bunch of very angry texts. And he had he had basically said, I slash we. So he meant I and Tucker. And I was like, wow, I've never had any you know, skirmish with Tucker. Why would Tucker be like in on this? Why would Tucker allow this? So literally after I put out that tweet, Tucker called me and he's like, Dinesh, I want to assure you, I had nothing to do with those tweets. Things got a little out of hand. I'm really, I, I, he said, I, I regret that. And he goes, I, I, I you know, so I, I I have mended fences with Tucker. I have no problem with Tucker. We both emphasize we're on the same side. We're fighting for the same cause. And so I'm all good with Tucker right now. And that tweet to that degree is obsolete. It's been fixed. Now, the broader point, though, is true. To this date, the movie's been out two weeks. There's not a single person at Fox, to my knowledge. Now, I kind of slipped through, and I was on Fox Business on Larry Kudlow's show. But I think that was literally a case where I kind of, without anybody noticing. Uh, but what's happened is none of the major hosts at Fox has uttered the phrase 2,000 mules. Think about it. This is probably one of the main things being talked about on the right. This issue, as you know, is huge. It has continued to haunt the American mind. We are offering new types of evidence. Now, Fox got into trouble for making certain statements about machines and they're being sued by Dominion. But my point is, and you've seen the movie, we don't really discuss that. We don't talk about the machines. In no way are we going to increase Fox's legal liability. In fact, on the contrary, Fox can go to court and say, listen, if we were mistaken about the machines, we were not mistaken about, about the fact that there was fraud. So a journalistic enterprise can get things wrong, but we were on the right track. So the movie, in a weird way, helps them and helps them legally. So, and I also don't think any news organization should take dictation from lawyers because lawyers are basically gonna operate on a, they will take a completely legitimate story and say, you can't cover it because it's gonna expose us to legal liability.
how can a so-called news organization ignore a massive news story that is on the minds of its own audience? You say don't take advice from lawyers. I say if there's reluctance to address your documentary, it's because they're taking advice from their corporate overlords and advertisers and sponsors, and then they're taking orders from PR teams that don't want to have to answer a bunch of questions. Fear runs rampant, and so the, I, I guess, and again, I know you're not, you've clarified you're not beefing with Tucker Carlson, but you can see how Tucker and others are trying to walk a delicate line of not further pissing off their corporate advertisers. They're getting pressure from their PR people that, you know, they live in fear of the New York Times and a social media lynch mob. You know that some of these news organizations and hosts are all on your team, but they're in a tough spot. I, I totally get that. Um, so here's my thought about that. The Washington Post, uh, there's a guy, their national correspondent is this guy named Philip Bump, and he's written about seven articles. He knows that this is a serious matter. So he's written an article about, oh, is geo-tracking really reliable? And he wrote another article about, could it be that this movie is showing legal votes that are merely delivered in an illegal way? And does that really make them illegal votes? So he's been he's been trying to dispute. And then finally, I wrote him and I said, hey, Mr. Bump, how about if you, we just do a very civil public discussion or debate about this topic? And so he said, uh, he talked to his editors and they've approved now doing an in-depth discussion Q&A in the Washington Post. So think about it. You got the Washington Post that Fox News is supposedly really afraid of discussing the issues in the movie substantively, not just it's a conspiracy theory, but discussing issues like how do state laws vary in terms of vote harvesting? If vote harvesting is permitted in some places, does that mean that paid ballot trafficking is also permitted? That's an important distinction I make in the movie. So we're having this discussion in the Washington Post this week, and yet the topic has not been mentioned on Fox. So I guess what I'm saying to Fox is you don't actually need to be quite so uptight about it. You can. I'm not saying you have to agree and embrace the movie. I'm simply saying you should discuss it. I agree with you. I'll push back this way and say Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. I don't think he runs it in a way that says he cares about really turning a profit. And so the Washington Post perhaps is freer than Fox News, which again has lost a lot of, the major corporations won't touch Fox News. That's why Mike Lindell and my pillow are so, you know, you have to be a real patriot to support Fox News. Uh, I'm not criticizing their advertisers. I actually love their advertisers for, but, but again, I just think Fox News is in a tiny bit more vulnerable position than being owned by second, third richest man on the planet. Uh, and so they're free. And, and I can't wait to see how they treat you in this Q&A documentary. I hope you got some uh, uh, agreements in place that make sure they deal with you in an honest fashion. My expectations are low. And then, Dinesh, I guess my, my real uh, concern is Republicans, the politicians, that's who's really being silent here in my view. These guys, all of them, should be uh, promoting your documentary 
and suggesting like, hey, you know what, Donald Trump wasn't crazy. There was funny business in this election. Uh, Time Magazine said they fortified the election. Dinesh D'Souza has put out evidence, now that they stole this thing. It's the politicians in their silence which bothers me the most. Well, I must say that I'm not giving up on the Republican establishment. I had um, Steve Scalise, the number two House Republican, on my podcast a couple of days ago. He's like, everyone's telling me about 2,000 meals. He's like, I haven't seen the movie, Dinesh. I'm like, you know what, Steve? When I go home, I'm going to overnight you a copy of the movie. So it's interesting because you're right. The Democrats, if, if, if I were making this movie for the left, if I were to show that Trump stole the 2020 election, the 2016 election, they would be over all over this so fast. I would be on every network, every politician, Schumer would be speaking about it from the floor. The Republicans don't work like this. It's sort of like they, it takes them about three weeks to get the memo that there's even a movie out. Second of all, they won't take any steps to do anything about it until someone, literally one of their big donors, ideally, sits them down and says, watch this movie and don't get up until the credits roll. So I invited a bunch of these guys to Mar-a-Lago. I went and gave a presentation at the RNC where they were doing a training meeting, and, and ours was not an official part of that agenda, but it was available to them, and about 40 or 50 of them came over, but a bunch of them didn't, and Ronna McDaniel did not, uh, even though I sort of brought, you may say, the circus to her, to her door. And so what I'm getting at is I think these guys do need to see the movie. It's still relatively new, but if they see it, and they still don't say anything and they don't do anything, this will be a very uh, chilling statement about the sorry state of the Republican leadership right now. Well, a lot of people love that, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil, and they'll put the blinders on and never watch it. Uh, again, I, I can't, t I think it's very compelling, very worth watching. Uh, Dinesh, if you had to make a prediction, uh, where do you think this goes from here do you think at some point uh, there will be a legitimate investigation into the election fraud that clearly did occur in the 2020 election? Do, do you think this thing has legs or will this conversation or midterms will happen and maybe if that goes well for Republicans, they just drop this issue? No, this is what I, I think is going on. There's an investigation based upon True the Votes research um, going on in Georgia right now. But I'm a little suspicious of it because it's being run by Secretary of State Raffensperger, who has been kind of on all sides of the fence on this. And it's going to be very difficult for him to admit I was the sheriff and a big heist was going on right under my nose. I didn't even know anything about it. So I don't know if he's advancing the investigation or sort of blocking it. I can't tell. The sheriff of Yuma saw a movie, went berserk, and has opened up an investigation in Yuma, Arizona. And I believe there will be arrests fairly soon. By the way, the mule that I interviewed in the movie, uh, Greg Phillips interviewed in, in the movie, is from Yuma, Arizona. And, and that would be a very important step forward because, see, True the Vote has the cell phone IDs of these mules, but doesn't have their names. Only law enforcement can get their names. And the way they do it is they just get a warrant. They go to the cell phone providers who then give them their names 
games, and then they interview the mules. Who paid you? Who put you up to it? Who organized this operation? So that's the logical next step. There are people who come up to me and they go, well, is the Supreme Court going to watch your movie? And no, the Supreme Court's not going to, it doesn't work like that. There needs to be an investigation. People need to be arrested. The, a, a larger um, organization of this needs to be unraveled. And then the next steps of action can be taken because I'm pretty sure this goes pretty high up the totem pole. I don't think this is something that some low, low level nonprofits in these states organized on their own. It's organized in five separate states in almost an identical way. Dinesh, I just want you to be crystal clear here and, and maybe tell us why, but I think you said you think there will be a rest in Arizona sooner than later. Am I right on that? And why do you think that? Because we are talking about rampant illegality on two separate levels. The first one is the mules. In no state is it legal to pay anybody to deliver a ballot. And so even though a state might say, in Georgia, for example, you can give your ballot to a family member. If you're in a nursing home, you can give it to a caregiver. You drop it off. But you can't turn over your votes to no these nonprofit organizations to hire mules to go drop them off in the middle of the night. That's illegal in every state. Number two, nonprofit organizations, especially these so-called 501c3s, are strictly forbidden by law from engaging in any kind of partisan electioneering for any candidate or any party in any way. And so if these left-wing nonprofits deeply embedded in the inner city are collecting votes or manufacturing votes and hiring mules to deliver them to put Joe Biden on, that's a serious violation of the IRS rules. So put it again, if you switch the two parties, if, if this, was, this had been done by Republicans, Merrick Garland's DOJ would be conducting FBI raids on all these 501c3s right now, grabbing their computers, grabbing their files, um, and, 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 and pursuing a, an in-depth investigation to find out how it is that 501c3 organizations taking tax-free money are involved in partisan electioneering in this way. Dinesh? Thank you so much for the time. Uh, I think I'm going to watch 2,000 Mules again. Uh, <laughs> and your next movie needs to be uh, 300 million fools that accepted uh, this election. And, and I hope I get banned from YouTube for saying that. Well, 2000mules.com, that's the place to go because it shows you three or four different ways you can see the movie, but they're all on the website and it's the number 2000, just 2000mules.com. Thank you, Dinesh. Thank you. All right. That's tomorrow I hear playing. That means we'll see you tomorrow. I've never been alone. I'll break my back for freedom. Bless. We are living, get back. We are receiving all the seed when we all want to be free. We want freedom. I just want, I want to be. I just want, I want to be. I just want. I wanna be, I just want